Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes a chronological look at the films of Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1999 and discussing Stormcatcher. In this direct-to-video action film, Dolph plays Major Jack Holloway, a decorated Air Force pilot who is tasked with flying the Stormcatcher, a top-secret stealth fighter jet. Yet when the Stormcatcher is stolen, Holloway is framed for treason and must race against time to clear his name and find the plane before it's too late. It's the deadliest weapon our country's ever developed, and... ID switched. It's just been stolen. Now, an innocent Air Force pilot stands accused... I haven't done anything! But to clear his name, he's got to stop an army of renegade soldiers... Welcome to the revolution! ...before they unleash their attack. Freedom has a new hero. Dolph Lundgren. Stormcatcher. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me once again is my buddy Brenton Hasem from the website All Out of Bubblegum. Brenton, it's a pleasure having you back. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Oh, thanks for inviting me again. Well, this I'm glad is, to uh, be here. <laughs> yeah, well, th- this is one of those films that I, I think I kind of told you. I was like, okay, we're we're kind of in that uh, that direct-to-video era of of Dolph's career that um yeah. is is kind of uh is kind of under the radar especially by the mainstream so I was like you know I think I may be having you come on um for for quite a few of these and I distinctly remember back when you and I discussed Stormcatcher I mean I had such a fun time uh or it's not excuse me not Stormcatcher Sweepers Sweepers sorry yeah um I had such a fun time chatting that one with you I remember I said uh well you know Stormcatcher is going to be coming up would you be willing to uh to come on and discuss that one. And I remember you distinctly said, oh boy, I'm getting all the good ones. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's pretty much how I feel about these ones. Uh, although I'll be honest, uh, I went and rewatched it for this and I thought it was fairly charming after watching it again, after all this time, you know, it's, it's, it's hard as in the right place. I mean, you can tell that it it's, it's, tr- it's trying to, you know, that they don't have um, much that they're working with, but, they, you know, you can tell with this film that, yeah, like I said, it's hard is in the right place. And I, I'll just get to it right now. I honestly think one of the things that, that helps this film stand out because yeah, like you, I had seen it initially on, um, on rental when I, uh, when it first came out and I want to say this is my second or third time viewing it, but don't quote me on that. But I honestly think it's director Anthony Hickox. I think his directing yeah. style, he, uh, he has so much style to this entire thing that it definitely makes it stand out much more than it has any right to. Yeah. Um, I know Hickox from, uh, interviews where I'd see, or I'd read, read interviews with him where he'd said things, uh, pretty nasty things about working with Steven Seagal. And I, yeah. I'm not a big, I'm not a huge horror guy like I was when I was younger, but I was aware of, uh, the wax work and, uh, he did something else. Oh, he did the Hellraiser three. So I was aware of those kind of movies. And so he has a certain style 
that he's developed, but he is more of a her guy, although he's in the movie, which is really yeah. funny. Yeah, it's wild him. seeing him show up. Yeah, he, he shows up as one of the uh, CIA agents in the film. So <laughs> Yeah, so that's pretty much my knowledge of, of Hickox's is, is from the things he said about Seagal and he and and really just the, that he was a horror guy. Although he's more know, like a Peter Jackson type. He's not a you know, back when Peter Jackson did horror, not not that he was a gory guy, but he has a those flourishes. He loves close ups and he in this movie is no different. He really utilizes close ups. Yeah, yeah, you know, um I I'm gonna be honest, I'm not the biggest um horror fan, but I am familiar with his work. Um so here, this particular film, he's credited as Tony Hickox. Um but yeah, yeah. he's you know, he's pretty much primarily known for horror films. Like you said, he did Hellraiser three. We all remember Hellraiser three, right? Uh, <laughs> I thought that was um, the most awesome one, but I, I yeah. only seen the first four, so I'm I might be maybe there's better ones later. But he also did that, a that waxwork one's... movie. Um, he did a war. Yeah, he did both of them. Oh, did he do both of them? Okay, because I know he yeah. also did a warlock sequel. Is that right? I think so. But yeah, that again, like I, I'm I haven't even watched all the warlock movies. I watched I think the first three, and I don't think that's one of them. I think horror is the genre that Hickox is probably the most comfortable in. Um, I think around this period, mm -hmm. he's gone on the record as saying this, around this period, um, he was dabbling in action films purely for the easy paychecks. Um, he's gone on record as this not uh, – all the films that he did around this period, he's not really a huge fan of. He was doing it mainly just for the paycheck to pay bills. Um, he actually did another film with uh, Dolph. It's, gonna, it's actually the next one. Um, coming up mm -hmm. in the pipeline um, called Jill the Ripper. And then, like you said, he did another one with Steven Seagal called Submerged. Yeah. And he and so, hated it. Yeah. <laughs> he hated working on it. I, I just, that's the thing I remember. Uh, I, his name always stands out just from that. Just hated Seagal. And, and it basically was the, the point where he goes, well, I'm just going to make, I think he said something along the lines of, I'm just going to do her from now on. I can't do this. I'm a better director than this. I, He's getting bullied around by Seagal. It's just, and Seagal is just horrible work ethic, apparently, which is, you know, oh. it's one of those things that's kind of too bad to learn about. But yeah, well, I mean, but I mean, well, and if you look at, uh, if you look at Stormcatcher and then if you look at the next film, um, that's, uh, going to be coming up here in, the, um, when, when I, when I get to it, of course, but Jill the Ripper, I mean, you know, for being, I'll say it right now, for being direct to video action films, there is a certain kind of uh, uh, visual style and edge yeah. and flourish to this. And I think a lot of that is a lot of that credit goes to goes to Hickox because, you know, like I said, this this film really isn't anything. It, it's, it's tough because I really want to like it. I do. But there's really not a whole lot of original to it. It's just kind of basic no. and rote and by the numbers. But you can tell that uh, that the Hickox is trying. I mean, there's so many. um close-up shots like you said um he, he loves slow motion he loves slow motion and he loves using the squib works and then just he you know, uses closing, yeah, he uses doing slow motion better than than uh most of the guys around this time were doing they, yeah. they just a lot of directors uh including the keone waxman from the last movie that we talked about sweepers uh just didn't quite seem to understand how to use it i do think hickox understands it better when you watch uh just the way he films explosions and way he just moments where he goes, oh, okay, that's, that's the moment that's going to be slow motion. He has a point later on when, uh, he yell the Dolph yells 
Nicole. And I was like, that's a good slow motion moment. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. So this came out um, on rental. Uh, uh, it was, uh, re- excuse me, for rental on VHS. But I'm curious, when you first saw it, when did you first, <laughs> when did you first hear about Stormcatcher and see it, if you can go back this far? I can actually with this one because I saw it and uh, I worked at a video store and I'd always seen the title and it was just kind of one of those like, oh man, I can, you know, Dolph's really thinking low. If that's what it felt like when I saw it on the shelves, because it just looked like it had the worst cover. I ended up watching it when I was doing kill counts and I watched a whole bunch of these in a row and, and this was just, it felt like, oh, this is the lowest point. And, and it's weird because when I watched it again, I went, this isn't his lowest point, and it's not. No, we have Agent Red coming up. It. We have yeah, Agent okay. Red coming up. That's going to be the low point. But <laughs> so, to be fair, a weird thing happened, you know, and I'll say that when I hit Agent Red, where they're using footage from this movie in Agent Red, and it was so weird because I thought, am I losing my mind? Yeah. But, yeah, um, I didn't pick up the stylistic flourishes at the time when I, when I first watched it. And so it's easier to see now certain things. And also you got that distance and you've seen enough movies that you go, okay, they're trying to be a uh, broken arrow here and they're trying to be the rock. You know, he's doing different things and this is what they want to be. So they're, or at least they're cribbing from those movies, but they're not, um, it's not as good, but they're, he has, he clearly understands the action medium as it existed at the time, you know, you've got the girl from uh, from Long Kiss Goodnight in here, and it's, there's just a lot of things going on like that. You know, it's one of the Zima sisters is is his daughter, and so that's kind of interesting. But just things like that you wouldn't, uh, I, I guess, you wouldn't notice right away uh, at the time because you're like in the midst of it, and it was the '90s, and they were kind of a lot of bad movies at the time that, like this that. I think uh, this one just didn't stand out even then, but I think it maybe has more of a leg to stand on now if you rewatch it. Well, yeah, this, um, you know, for me personally, um, I didn't work in a video store, but I was, I mean, that, that was, I was there pretty much, uh, you know, a few times a week, it seems like. But um, yeah, I actually first caught the trailer for this on a uh, VHS rental copy of Universal Soldier The Return. If you remember all of those uh, action mm-hmm. movies that were put out by Sony. Yeah. Well, then then it wasn't Sony. Then it was uh, Columbia TriStar. Um, but on the trailer reel, it always had, you know, the same you know, the same type of trailers. And so I remember uh, the 32nd trailer for this, which is the one that I played earlier in the episode, um, that was attached to Universal Soldier The Return. And that that was pretty much it. And so immediately when I saw it, it was, you know, a new Dolph Lundgren movie. At this point, he was pretty much exclusively direct-to-video. So it was like, okay, cool. Yeah. The next Lundgren film, I'll check this one out. But real quick, the one thing I want to say about, about Sony or Columbia TriStar around this time is, you know – Direct-to-video action was was pretty big, and there were a lot of companies that were dabbling in that particular genre. But I always felt from about 1999 to, I would say, 2009, 2010, Sony really seemed to have the market cornered in terms of direct-to-video action. While their stuff was going direct-to-video, it always felt like their action titles were just a level above all of the other guys, PM Entertainment, and there is another label mm-hmm. called Sterling Entertainment. And I think a lot of that is because Sony, they had the stars. 
they had Dolph Lundgren, mm-hmm. they had Van Dam, and then they had they were starting to get Steven Seagal around this time. They had the marketing as well, yeah, where they could throw that on in front of Universal Soldier: The Return, exactly that kind of thing, when people were aware, you know. And, but it's funny you bring up that uh, PM Entertainment because you can tell this is another movie that that uses a lot of the guys that worked on PM's movies, and you know the the action is is pretty much all PM Entertainment stuff. Yeah, uh, what's uh. Sp- Spyros Rosados doing the action in this, and and you can tell he, well, he has a, he has a style. He did the Gary Daniels art, what I call the art trilogy, Rage, Recoil, and Riot, and it's very much of that style. Well, that's an excellent segue, yeah, because this was produced and distributed by a company. They're now they've long been defunct and out of business, but at the time it was distributed by Phoenician Entertainment. This was the the production house for Andrew Stevens, Fred Olin Ray, uh, Jim Wynorski, pretty much the kings of direct-to-video films, especially those direct-to-video schlocky films, um, especially also the ones that like to ape the traditional diehard formula. Um, these guys mm-hmm. in this, this production house, they, they love to just reuse the diehard formula, diehard on a train, diehard, you know, on a plane, whatever it may be. Um, but they were also huge fans of stock footage. Uh, surprisingly, Stormcatcher is not a new image production. You know, Dolph was doing quite a few, few, excuse me, quite a few films with new image around this time. But I, I suspect, I believe that he had a, a contract of some kind with Phoenician Entertainment because the next few films in his filmography were distributed by these guys. But what's, what's wild about, uh, <laughs> about this production house and these guys is, yeah, like I said, they used tons of stock footage and they were so brazen and so bold as they would remake their own films, lifting entire scenes from the previous film. Uh, case in point, um, uh, Agent Red and Countermeasures. There was a film that they did with uh, Michael Dudikoff called Countermeasures. Those are basically the same film being Die Hard on a Sub. And what's wild is Agent Red actually uses stock footage from Countermeasures. I mean, it's just, it's, it's laziness at its finest. Like, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you can kind of feel that. I do feel that this is a, a paycheck film, but it's, it's not without its merits. It's got a couple, really decent standout action scenes. Um, a couple of them are, or one of them at least is, is, is minutes after the other one where, you know, he, he gets out, he, he gets uh, arrested and then they blow up the car he's in, which is, you know, standard PM entertainment stuff. Uh, even though this isn't PM, I should just say Spyros Rosados because that's the guy who did the action in this, but, uh, you you probably know who he is. He did. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't. I I'm trying to think of it. He he did a lot of. He does a lot of movies still, but he basically his thing is exploding cars. Yeah. So you you know <laughs> he he's the guy. He's doing the. He does a lot of the Fast and Furious movies now and stuff. So you'll you'll recognize his his work. It's it's pretty clear. He did um when they did the uh, Captain American movies, they brought him in. Oh, cool. So that kind of. Yeah, so and he did um he directed I think he directed like one thing ever. It was like a Cynthia Rothrock Corey Feldman movie or Corey Haim movie. So, oh, was it was called, it, was that Fast Getaway, right? Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's okay. The one. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so like I said, this was um this was 
look, Dolph and uh, and Anthony Hickox, you know, they, they were both, they were saddled with a limited shooting schedule, a low budget, but you know what? I honestly feel that these two individuals, I mean, there were other people working on the film, obviously, um, but I think a lot yeah. of the credit, again, goes to Dolph because he's charming. He's as likable as ever. But then you have Anthony Hickox, mm-hmm. who had all these constraints and all these restrictions, and I feel like he is still delivering a film while it is rote and while it is fairly basic and there's nothing there's nothing really original to it in in the end i think that this raises itself a few notches above the standard at the standard direct-to-video stuff that was hitting uh vhs shelves back in 1999 yeah well the thing is at that time um and maybe if you didn't work in a video store you didn't notice but you must have noticed that Every almost everybody was reeling from the Matrix still, so they were all trying to come out with this, you know, these kind of Matrix computer type movies. This movie, I guess, is different in that it doesn't really do that. It has a hacking scene in it, but it's it wasn't one of those. It wasn't a Matrix ripoff like so many movies were at the time. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the Matrix actually because um, I actually. Just, I can't remember if I was reading an article about this or if I heard it on another, on another podcast or something, but it's really kind of wild. And this is a slight tangent, but with regard to the Matrix and especially Keanu Reeves, if you think about it, Keanu Reeves, um, he has, he has pretty much, he's had the opportunity to reinvent the action genre as we know it three times. If you go back to 1995 when he did Speed, I mean, that, you know, Speed was one of the films that kind of uh, reset the action genre and kind of started, um, you know, giving guys like Sly and Arnold and everything a run for their money because it was around this time that um, audiences were like, well, we don't need a big muscle bound guy to be an action hero. And so that kind of, you know, set uh, these big guys back a bit. And then when The Matrix came out in 99, that completely reinvented the action genre to where, like you said, People were, or excuse me, audiences and um, and these stars were trying to reel from that and trying to kind of ape that formula. And then if you go then to uh, 2014 with John Wick, now the action genre that we currently have, it's all trying to copy the style of John Wick. So I, I guess we yeah. can say thank you, Mr. Reeves, for continually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's hard because you almost want to... Um... There, there's part of me that's like, oh, there's all these guys and, and they're just, they're, they're not using them. You know, uh, Dolph Lundgren, I feel, can still do a lot of great things and then they don't really use a lot of these guys and then they get somebody and then they bring in stunt doubles and stuff. They've It's always been the case, although more recently they just use computers. But the other hand, John Wick is, is awesome. So oh, yeah, you it's amazing. Yeah, you can't begrudge it too much when on its own merits, it's pretty good. You know, it's it's a great film. It's a great action movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, l- let's get into the plot for this one. Um, so, yeah, like okay. we said earlier, Lundgren plays Major Jack Holloway. He is this test pilot for the Air Force. Um, and, yeah, he's piloting this, uh, this top-secret stealth fighter uh, jet known as the Stormcatcher. He gets framed for treason. He gets framed for stealing the plane. And so he pretty much is in a race to clear his name and also find the plane. Um, it's, it's, it's a decent premise, decent enough premise. Um, the film opens actually with he and his partners. They're testing the, the, the storm catcher, <clears throat> this stealth bomber. Um, and it's interesting. I thought this was kind of cool. So flying the jet 
requires the use of these yellow flight suits and these uh, these big globe helmets. Uh, what, what's interesting about these suits and these helmets are um, that they can track the I guess they can track the heart rates and the pulses of their pilots, and each suit is synced to to the pilot who is currently piloting plane. That, that that was a pretty uh pretty cool unique touch. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna admit right now that I know if this is actually how it works in the Air Force, but it wouldn't surprise me. And it's a it's a cool characteristic and trait there. I liked the. I'm not really sure exactly how it works, but it seems to be a kind of speech to text communication. Yeah, they use. Uh, and I kind of like that. I think that's nice. And and it. It's really strange though. Like he pulls a, a visor down to do it, but and somehow that makes it work better. But I couldn't tell if they're actually. There are several times where they seem to be responding to each other, and they're not actually talking. Right. Well, and I don't know about you, but I mean, the first time I saw this, I kept looking at it, and I was like, "These suits look like Mysterio from Spider-Man. Just those big, yeah. <laughs> those big globe helmets." But it's interesting. Anytime we see footage of the stealth fighter jet that's stock footage right there and i'm trying to figure out what film the that the footage of the stealth fighter jets came from i don't know do you by chance know no i assumed when i was watching it that it was uh probably some kind of uh, air force promotional stuff okay <laughs> it's probably uh you know public domain footage of the the bomber stealth okay. bomber so well, thank God for the public domain, I guess, on that, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> that's what I'm assuming. Because, uh, you know, you watch um, Broken Arrow, which is the other movie that has a big stealth fighter in it, or stealth bomber. And there, theirs is, uh, it appears to be they're working with the government for that footage, but I'm not sure. It, it could also just be completely fake. But, you know. In this movie, it's clearly some kind of stock footage, but they work it into the plot pretty well. I was going to say that, yeah, when I first saw this back in 1999, and then actually, and I, I do think this was my third time viewing it, yeah, because I did see it in 1999, I bought the DVD, I want to say in 2002, 2003, and then uh, watched it again for this, but you know, those first couple times I watched it, I didn't even really pick up on the fact that that was stock footage. Now, because I'm a little more, I'm a little older and I've, I've seen more films, <laughs> you, you know, I'm it, it's able to pick up on it and notice it now, but like you said, it does blend in pretty well narratively with the film to where if you're watching this for the first time and you don't really know about the, uh, the people who had their hands in making this, I don't think you're going to be able to tell that, okay, that's stock footage. They didn't really film that for these scenes. Well, instead you just kind of like, there's a jarring moment where you go, wow, what they, they splurge for that. And then, I know. <laughs> and then you kind of go, Oh wait, no, no, they didn't. <laughs> But yeah, that's, I did think that when I was rewatching it too. I actually was like, "Whoa, how much did they spend on this?" But yep. I, I guess it, it probably wasn't much. <laughs> well, because yeah. the rest of the time they'll be like you know, hiding on, just outside of the Air Force base, pretending that they're in it and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah. So, and we haven't really talked about it. But yeah. So, so Jack Holloway. So this is Lundgren's character. Um, his team mm -hmm. consists of he, he calls them Sparks, and then he also calls them Sparky. I, but it's Sparks, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, his team consists of Sparks. Sparks is the operator. That's right, yeah. Um, he's played by actor Maestro Clark. And then Captain Lucas, who's played by actor John Pinnell. Um, Sparks is playing, you know, let's face it, the, the, the character that he's playing, he's pretty much, what, 
the comic relief here in, in the film, and I never really found him to be. Yeah, he, he's charming, yeah, but I never really found him to be hilarious in, in any of the, any of these scenes. No. It was it was more just um, eye rolling, groan inducing, at a lot of the jokes that they were thrown out there. I think I think Lundgren in some of those scenes as well almost kind of seems a little embarrassed. Like, yeah, all right, you know. Yeah, well, you know what's weird about it is that later on when he's being more dramatic, he works a lot better. He really does. Yeah, I so, noticed that. Yeah, especially the scene yeah. near the end when when he's getting beat up and interrogated. I mean, that's honestly, I feel like when he is really, uh, yeah, when you like you said, he's he's much better. But yeah, the first act of the film where he's just you know joking, he can't set up the tent and everything like that. It's just it's a little it's a little too cornball, I think, for mm-hmm. um, for this film. But we do know regarding the character of Captain Lucas, we pretty much know almost immediately that he is up to no good. You know, he gets cop, he gets cocky with sparks after the, uh, the flight test. Yeah. And he also offers to turn in Holloway's flight suit and helmet. And we pretty much know right away. Okay. He is going to be one of the, one of the main bad guys in this film. I don't think that was a surprise to anybody. At least it certainly wasn't. He's me. heavily telegraphing it. Yes. With that scene, he's just staring at him and then longer stares at him skeptically. And yeah. then eh, just gives it to him anyways. It's a really weird moment in the movie, actually. But, you know, Holloway, he is a family man. And so that's really kind of cool. And especially around this time in Lundgren's career, seeing him, I, I always gravit- I always found myself gravitating to the roles where Lundgren is playing just a regular Joe or regular guy. Um, and in this one, yeah, he's a family man. He has a beautiful wife, a loving daughter um, played by Yvonne Zima, um, which you mentioned earlier. She's pretty much playing the exact same character that she played from Long Kiss Goodnight, which is okay. No. She's she can she can cry and looked panicked uh, extremely well. I just want to throw it out there real quick. Um, Yvonne Zima, she's obviously grown up uh, since then, but I don't know if you saw it, but there is a small little um, independent found footage horror film that is out called The Monster Project. Like I said, she's I have not seen it. She's considerably older and much more grown up now, but um, she is downright scary as hell in the Monster Project. So please, uh, really, yeah, I, I highly recommend. It. It's on Amazon Prime, so but um, it's worth it's worth checking out because you wouldn't believe that that is her, and I had no idea that was her, and I had to go back. But yeah, check well, that one that out. Feeling with uh, her sister, uh, Madeline, is in. She was in. Uh, she was on the Nanny. Okay, uh, she was the. She was Grace on the Nanny. And so when, when she shows up in Californication, which was, I watched all of that. The, I don't know if you ever watched that show. It was pretty good. Uh, David Duchovny. Um, but she's on that. And you know, that was one of those, oh my gosh. Like, well, look who grew up. That's the same thing. <laughs> what do you think of uh, Kylie Bax as uh, Holloway's wife? I think she's pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> she, she, her, she first stands out because she's got a really heavy New Zealand accent. And then, uh, you know, and you're just like, what is going on here with this family dynamic? You know, Swedish dad. and the, <laughs> But um, so I don't know. I think she's she's fairly bad. Um, I know that she she shows up as a, the dominatrix hostess and in, in Jill Riffs. So I know that was not <laughs> wild to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, she, that, that was one of the, like, the weird moments where I was like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> but that's cool. That same director, so they must they must have got along really well. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I, I I don't know anything about her other than that. I have no idea who she is. 
um, at all. Yeah, she's like, like I, a, I don't uh, recognize her from anything. Well, I looked her up. Yeah, she is a uh, she's a supermodel, um, and I think I think she she dabbled a little bit in acting around this period, around the late '90s, early 2000s. But um, for all intents and purposes, I think she's mostly known um, for her supermodel work. But yeah, it's it's just interesting that she had this period where she starred in two Dolph Lundgren movies, both directed by Anthony Hickox. And I think she, like I said, I think she did a few other random things, but for the most part, she does like a lot of avant-garde supermodel work. So, um, but in here we're, we're supposed to believe her as just a, uh, a soccer mom. Well, I guess a, a flag football mom more or less, but uh, yeah, she, she, she is the, um, she's going to be what pretty much the damsel in distress for this film. Nothing, not, not much to her character here. I should bring up, too, since we're talking about the family dynamic, when they reveal the the daughter is, is a or the, the character of the daughter, basically, they, they do this shot where it's just on Dolph Lundgren's face and he's yelling, tough talking somebody. And then they reveal that he's talking to a team of young girls playing touch football. Yes. And it's a pretty funny reveal. And they did it again in the. Fast, I think the last Fast and Furious movie with Dwayne Johnson's character. I was going to say that. Same I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah and I was like, I'm so that's the same guy that did the action on that. Did the action on this, which makes me wonder if that wasn't the same guy doing this scene. I was okay. I actually, I'll show. I I'll, I should send you a screenshot actually because that was in my notes as well. Um, just the whole reveal that has been telegraphed for years. A big tough guy giving orders in a huddle to reveal that the team is. Wait for it. Wait for it. A bunch of girls. And like you said, uh, Dwayne yeah. Johnson did that exact same reveal in uh, Fast and the Furious Eight. I wouldn't be surprised if. I don't know, like you said, the same person kind of had that idea, but um, I personally never really found that reveal to be per- particularly funny, especially it's, it's kind of weird that you mentioned that, too, because I remember seeing uh, a fate of the furious. And when that reveal happened, I remember thinking to myself, like, really, like we're, you know, here it is 2017 and we're still we're still doing that same gag, that same joke. Huh? OK. All right. Well, they did it in the Stormcatcher. So and that was 1999. Yeah, well, they, they, they did it. 20 years earlier or whatever. So it's, but yeah, it's, it is old now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I chuckled. I'll be honest. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Okay. <laughs> so, Most, but, although part of it was, I think the same surprise of, wow, they just did that same thing that I, but I'd forgotten about that gag in the in this movie. Well, and if we, if we move forward a bit into the film, so the next scene is after the football game, uh, Holloway, his family, and Sparks are camping and roasting s'mores. Why is Sparks camping with the f- <laughs> with with the family? I mean, and we get some more hilarity from Sparks as he's unable to set a tent. I I, I don't know. Um, I think the reason is, and I'm not positive, but at the end of the movie, he he screams, uh, "That's my goddaughter!" When the Right, they're playing football again at the end, and so I'm guessing they're just—he's really close. But I don't know if at the end of the movie he says that because of the—he lived through these events, or if there was always the case. Okay, so may, maybe that would be the reason why he's hanging out with them. Otherwise, it's just—it is very weird. Because at first, when when it started up and he was having his difficulty in the tent, I thought, oh, he's in there with somebody. Then no, nope, it's just by himself being weird. I think he just wants attention that bad. He's flipping over a tent, like, come on, other person's family, look at me. 
I know. Well, and I, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how Dolph explains that to his wife. Like, yeah, my, my work associate here who doesn't have a family or a girlfriend or anything like that on his own, he's going to be <laughs> tagging along with us and making s'mores. Um, I guess we'll put him to work and he can set up the tent. I don't know. So, <laughs> Uh, not cool. No. <laughs> when he leaves and does, he gets a call from work, um, purportedly. And when he leaves and then the movie changes to, uh, him just walking barefoot, I honestly thought I'd miss something the first time I watched it. I was actually like, what happened in the movie? Like, did I fall asleep? And I'm, did he already try and get the plane and crash? And like, like what happened? So you know, it's just one of those things. But I almost had that feeling this time, except that I—I I, I guess I was able to pay more attention. You get that fairly violent, almost horror movie-like scene where uh, his where Lucas steals the the fighter. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking that as well. Yeah, because okay, so Holloway is called away. It's very clear that he is being set up. He's been knocked unconscious, but. Him pretty much getting knocked unconscious and everything, we don't get to see any of that. All we get to see him is he is called away, and then the scene shifts immediately to, yeah, to the theft of the plane. Um, so, yeah, Captain Lucas, he is using Holloway's suit. Um, we find out, actually, that Captain Lucas is working with a group of terrorists. They're stealing the Stormcatcher, and these are a, a high, excuse me, a high-tech group of terrorists who are able to use Holloway's fingerprints in order to frame him, steal the plane, and then blow up the entire hangar. I, I found it kind of interesting. I don't know about you. At this point in the film, it's interesting how the plot is essentially borrowing the exact story arc and conflict from 1996's Broken Arrow. Did you did you feel that way at mm -hmm. all? Yeah, well, definitely. That, that's clearly what the movie's right. There's two things this movie wants to be, which is Broken Arrow and The Rock, right. the Michael Bay film. And this scene, it, it's it's just it's ultra violent. So, but it is trying to do that. But they they don't have the camaraderie that and that conflict that you get from a John Woo film, anyways. But that Christian Slater and John Travolta had, they had this whole dynamic that we established through the movie before the the reveal of Travolta's character as a as a basically a murderer and a thief. So we didn't get any of that this time. Instead, he just, the guy starts killing people and you're like, oh, okay. Like, I mean, we all knew he was going to take his suit and stuff or do something untoward, but we didn't know it was this far. And so it's very odd. It's a huge tonal shift, especially because when you, we were talking about sparks rolling around in the tent and they're cooking marshmallows, it's ostensibly a real, a funny, uh, kind of just fuzzy, goofy scene. And then immediately it's followed by this. It's it's shot like a horror movie. There's there's this lighting coming in from the windows, and there's a little bit of smoke and the, you know, the light shining through, and it's just dark. It is, and, and there's so much blood. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Anthony Hickox, he is a fan. It's very clear that he is a fan of slow motion, especially during action sequences, and he also really loves to zoom in and just slow down the camera anytime he's going to use those squibs. He loves squib work, and me personally, I, I, I always think it's a treat to see when, when squibs are utilized, um, whether it's a film from 20 mm -hmm. years ago like this or whether it is something nowadays. I just think, you know, the movies nowadays seem to rely too much on CGI, but yeah, the way it's just in slow motion. And like you said, 
just this violent um, squib work going on as he is, uh, as Lucas is, is hijacking the plane, killing everyone in there. Here's one thing that, that has never gelled with me about this film. 20 years ago when I saw it for the first time, I didn't like it then. To this day, it still doesn't work. If Okay, so narratively, if they want to make Holloway's partner a traitor and the main antagonist, fine. But he is a foot shorter than Dolph Lundgren. And nobody notices this at all. Nobody notices that the guy, that this is not Holloway at all. And just the fact that he, that Holloway is not even speaking to them and he's not even, I mean, and they, they all, everyone there just buys that this is, that this is apparently Holloway. It, that is one thing that has never, I mean, especially when you see Lundgren and, uh, and the actor playing Lucas, when you see them, when they square off at the end, like I said, he's a foot shorter than Dolph. Yeah. They look a little like well, a, you know, appearance wise, but no. Well, it's very, it's a very strange decision because when he, in the, er, the beginning of the movie is, is, uh, to to take us back a little bit, when they first walk in, they walk in as a pair, first of all. Right. Um, so the guards already should think something's up when one guy comes in. But also note that Dolph's <laughs> not only taller than that guy, he's taller than everyone in the room. Right. He is towering over everybody there. The guards, you know, the, the guys that check him, whoever. And, and, let, and let alone his partner. And his partner comes in wearing that, oh, it says Holloway, yeah, it's clearly the same guy it is a very odd choice that he that they just don't notice anything or maybe they do and they're just playing coy because the guy walks up and and does question him but he's more concerned about hey we don't have any scheduled flights you know that kind of thing yeah he's not like hey who's in there <laughs> when- let alone like hey also you're by yourself you where's your co-pilot and i haven't <laughs> it's just weird well, and I honestly think, and you know, here I was earlier talking about how I like the films where Dolph is playing an everyman, where he's playing a regular guy. But I also think that's one of the pro- slight problems when you're going to cast someone like, like Dolph Lundgren in one of these roles. It's just the fact that he is a larger than life figure. I mean, he is a he is a, a big, you know, figure. The fact that if you're going to do something like this, a character arc like this, especially with the villain, and you're going to have Dolph as your main character then you got to have your bad guy, you know, be intimidating. There's actually a scene. One of the other notes that I took is there's a scene later on in the film. Um, remember where he's sucker punched by uh, the obese mechanic who tries to stop him. Remember when the Holloway's trying to steal the, uh, the, the regular um, plane and, uh, and he, he gets into yeah. it with the obese mechanic. So yeah, we're, we're supposed to buy that this, you know, big mechanic here is, you know, intimidating. But then when you see him next to Dolph Lundgren, that that just doesn't that just doesn't work, you know. If if Dolph is playing a regular everyman, and then you're gonna have someone like that square off against him, you know, the other dude just isn't intimidating, you know. So I guess it's kind of a in a weird way, it's kind of a double edged sword, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's always an issue with with Dolph. Yeah. Is finding somebody that he can square off against and and uh, not look ridiculously overpowered. They they have to do something, even. Um, you know, Stallone, that was the whole point, was that Dolph Lundgren was the the, the, the Goliath to his David. So, you know, and then Rocky, back in Rocky IV. So it's it's very odd to try and do that again and again in his movies. But I don't know who they, who they would find to fight Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. Uh, I guess Seagal's a pretty big guy, but I, don't, I just don't know. You know, who, who would you even stack up against him? 
you'd have to find somebody. So it's always a, a thing like this guy's way faster or something. And then in this case, it was, I think that's just for comedic effect. The guy is just fat. So yeah. All right. That's just one. It's a goofy beat too, where <laughs> they basically ended on, he's pinned underneath this fat guy. And then the next scene he's flying. So <laughs> yeah, but you, you touched upon it already. Yeah. So after the theft of this plane, um, Holloway wakes up dazed in a field wearing that flight suit and he is arrested. He, he he later, after he gets arrested, he is interrogated. We haven't talked about uh, this character or the actor, but he's interrogated by General William Jacobs. General William Jacobs is played by uh, Robert Miano, who is this accomplished character yeah. actor. <laughs> and Holloway is completely oblivious. He absolutely has no idea as to his supposed quote-unquote crimes. One thing I wanted to say about uh, Robert Miano, who is playing the general, I honestly think that Robert Miano... He thinks that he's acting in a different movie. It, it's it's almost weird. He thinks yeah. he's he's in this uh, film that's going to go theatrical and he's gunning for that Oscar or something like that because he is he is doing an amazing job in this and he is just he's giving it all in this uh, film that I think was shot in eighteen days. I mean, but but you can't tell Robert Miano. I think he showed up on set and he says, "Yeah, I'm going to play the general. I'm going to act my ass off here." Well, he brings a lot of gravitas, too. He, yeah. I think he's quite good in this. Uh, and one thing, Dolph might not have a, a physical adversary, but um, this guy is so good and so stern that he is absolutely believable putting Dolph down uh, verbally. Because, <laughs> you, you know, normally you look at a guy and be like, well, Dolph will just tear that guy in half. But this guy is so good that you're like, oh, no, you get it. He commands respect. So it works here. It really does work. What did not work with me either, though, I don't know if you picked up on this. So, yeah, you talked about how the film wants to be uh, Broken Arrow. It also wants to be The Rock. It is mm -hmm. literally trying to be The Rock in so many ways to the point where I, I guess we can jump to the spoiler if you want to. But we find out that uh, that this general is pretty much the exact same character arc as Ed Harris in The Rock. I mean, he is yeah. he is the general who is disenfranchised with his own government, so he's turning into a terrorist. So, like I said, he's playing... He gives a speech exactly. that is almost the same exact speech that Harris gives. He does, yeah. He even talks to... He, he says the line. He says the Tree of Liberty must be... You know, that whole line. So, yeah. John Thomas Jefferson quote. I'm glad you picked up on that as well. So it's yeah. so weird. He, yeah, oh, he yeah. quotes it. He quotes it verbatim. The quote is the tree of freedom must be replenished time to time by the blood of terror, excuse me, by the blood of patriots quoted verbatim by uh, Ed Harris and the rock. And what is so interesting is the way in which he delivers the line is the exact same way as uh, Ed Harris delivers the line. Cause if you remember when Ed Harris gave that line, he's talking to Sean Connery and he says, well, have you ever heard mm -hmm. this? And Robert Miano says it in the exact same context. Like there is, yeah. It's it's odd that they that they even well. It's, I guess it's not that odd, you know. They're trying to replicate that success, it, 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 at this point, it's a formula. So they're just trying that. This movie does try and make it a little bit different. It's not exactly a, a die-hard scenario, so it kind of works, but also kind of doesn't. Maybe it would have been better if they had stayed more to that formula because it they would have stayed confined in an area and maybe would have cost them a little less, but I'm not sure. It's, it's a, it's a different choice to, to try and rip off a Michael Bay film and a John Woo film 
you know, in, in one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, but I mean, I guess I can't be too surprised considering, yeah, that this was <laughs> this was produced and distributed by a company who would literally I mean, they, they made their bones and they made their uh, they made their films pretty much cobbling together um, scenes from other films to make uh, make other films. So I guess it only makes sense that they would steal a, uh, a quote that was, <laughs> that was quoted in a, in a film three years prior. Yeah, you know, I suppose that's probably true. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, Holloway, uh, we see him, you know, he's escorted by the military police. Again, he has no idea what he has supposedly done. And, uh, you know, his, his general is just accusing him of treason and everything. And, and Holloway is, is adamant about he has done nothing. He serves his country. And as he is escorted, his, his van escort is ambushed. And he is taken and placed. Okay. <laughs> He is taken and placed into an ice cream truck. So I guess apparently these terrorists, they want to. Okay, if I understand this correctly, help me out here, Brenton. Um, these these terrorists here, they want to remain as inconspicuous as possible. So instead of going in a van, they're going to go into an ice cream truck, which apparently does not look odd traveling along a uh, a desolate desert landscape. Does that make sense at all to you? I mean, I. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you going to use? Now, it's, I don't know. The van? It's an odd the van choice again. In, this I mean... movie's full of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, they blew that up, so. Okay. <laughs> what are they going to do? I mean, it's weird. I think what happened was uh, this is one of those movies where it's like, what do you, what do you have? You know, we've got, we've got this, this busted up van we can blow up, and we've got an ice cream truck. Uh, we've got a whole lot of stock footage of stealth bombers, you know, and that's what I think happened. Yeah. There. Okay. Let's let's try and tie a script together with those elements. And he had just watched The Rock on TV. The Broken Arrow did well, so <laughs> that's what I'm guessing happened here. I almost kind of wonder as well as you know the the the. The production assistants and everybody working on this film was kind of like, okay, what do we have in our warehouse of props and materials that we have? Well, we have this ice cream truck here, and we have a lease on that yeah. for maybe the next six months. We got to use it in some kind of way. Let's <laughs> let's find a way. I mean, it it really doesn't make any sense. And like you said, it just seems odd having it, visually. It just looks you know kind of goofy and cornball considering 15 minutes earlier we saw just such brutal slaughter of uh, of all these guys in the uh, in the airplane hangar it's weird but i guess one of the great saving graces of this scene is we do get to we do get to hear uh dolph spout a a solid one liner after he kills every one of the captors in the truck he says so much for those snow cones so yeah <laughs> I actually I love his breakout sequence. Uh, I mean, it follows the the movie rule of if something's happening in your car or even outside your car, never stop your car. Right. They, just, they refuse to stop their car in movies. But that being said, uh, it's pretty good. He he's killing the hell out of the guys in the truck. He's shooting one guy with a MP5 just point blank, and the guy flies up into the corner of the truck. I loved it. Yeah. All that stuff's cool. And that's another, that's proper use of slow motion right there. Right, right. No, I mean, it, it, like where he, it works good. It looks good. Um, you know, that, that's the thing I, that I will say. Stock footage aside and everything, the film is, is, is wonderfully shot. I mean, it just, it looks, 
I mean, especially if you look, if you want to compare this to a lot of the direct video stuff nowadays, I mean, nowadays, everything that is coming out direct to video, it's all done digitally. This was done on legitimate mm -hmm. film and it looks, I mean, it still holds up and it still looks good. Yeah, it's very nice. There's excellent contrast with the coloring and they don't use a, a filter of any kind. So it, it, it holds up in dark scenes. It, the only issue is when we were talking about that interrogation, I remember thinking, God, this is really shaky for like, I, I know what they're going for, but I don't like it. They're just, they, they were shaking the camera to get in that state of mind. Right. Uh, while spinning it, they were doing a, a like a total, total like circumference spin with the camera facing in on the actors facing each other. It was a, uh, it's, it's sort of jarring, but once it gets to the escape scene, uh, it's, it's, swerving around but that's mimicking the movement of the car so you're like okay and it works for that scene you know you got to do it where it's right I, i've never been a fan of the, the paul greengrass style where it's always moving all the time like that right uh, i'm fine with a, a moving camera but it doesn't need to shake i, I want to see the films i'm looking at well, yeah, and, and speaking of uh, of scenes that um, are pretty frenetic and shaky cam, yeah, so if you go forward into the film a little bit, you know, where, where Dolph is frantically racing through the hospital demanding a doctor, so we haven't really talked about this, but yeah, he is able to reunite with his family briefly, but a, um, a the, the terrorists pretty much ambush and attack. Holloway in the home with uh, with he and his family and um, one of the terrorists literally it's it's pretty pretty malicious and pretty violent but they stab Holloway's wife Jessica right in the back and so what we get is a great scene with Dolph frantically racing through the hospital demanding a doctor solid acting here I always felt from both Lundgren also mm -hmm. from Little Levon Zima honestly I think both of these people here are are making you believe that. Um, that she's fearful her mom is going to die, that um, that Lundgren's wife is going to die. I almost kind of wonder in in a scene like this, you almost you almost wonder if Dolph was was pulling from a place. OK, he's pulling from a personal place, being a husband and a father who may lose the mother of his child, because I've always felt if you want to if you want to look at his entire acting reel, I always felt that this scene in particular is some of his best work, which is odd considering it's such a low, low budget cliche film. But this scene in particular, I think, stands out. Well, it's it's a uh, it's one of those scenes where it's very stylized, and I think that it's probably not in a real hospital. I think what they have is a hallway, um, just like a set hallway, right? And so they're doing what they can in that hallway, but it's really there's some really good stuff. There's a it's it's about a one second shot of his foot slipping in in his wife's blood as he's pushing the gurney, yeah, and. Just like that touch, I was like, that's nice. That's a nice touch. Um, you wouldn't, you know, I was sitting there thinking earlier that this is a, a paycheck film, and I said that earlier, but this, something like that shows that he he still cares to an extent Yeah, what, what he's doing. Yeah, like exactly. I think around um, this time he was he was pretty much um, content and accepting of the fact that he was a direct to video guy. But honestly, you see a scene like this, and it's very clear that you know he was kind of in the mindset of okay, yeah, even if this is going to be a direct to video project, I'm going to give it my all. Which is one of the one of the reasons why I just have you know such respect for the guy. And if you look at someone like Steven Seagal. You know, here he was, you know, he still is to this day, you know, doing these paycheck roles. And, you know, you can't even count on Seagal to come back and do the dubbing. 
You know what I mean? But but yeah. Lundgren, he is going to bring it for a small independent project like this. I should uh, I should also mention um, before that scene, there's, there's the other decent action scene in the movie um, wherein the wife gets stabbed. But the the bad guys are coming in through the windows and everything. And I think what he's trying to do is face off. Right. Or something like it. Right. Yeah, I, I wondered that but, as well. Yeah. And because they do they do the overlay um, fades and and all that stuff that, you know, and, and face off was a big hit. It was just a couple of years before this. And I think if he was doing if he liked John Woo and he liked Broken Arrow, he, he's certainly aware or somebody is aware of face off. And that's what they're doing in that scene. They're coming in the windows and they're in the SWAT gear and he's just mowing them down. But uh, they they do all this stuff with the shot. Where you'll, you'll like I was saying, they, they do these fades and he's turning with with the gun in slow motion, and, and they just keep overlaying those edits, and it's a pretty cool effect. It, and it's it's not exactly woo, but it's a good uh, imitation, I guess. It's not the best, but it's one of those. This isn't expensive. This is pretty good for that. And and did you notice that it's the girl from or the woman from the beginning of the mercenaries? That stabs the wife. I did notice that. I did notice that. Yeah, and it's it's a pretty like I said, it's a it's a pretty vicious scene. But um, but yeah, you get um both in this scene, so the attack yeah. on Holloway's house and in the hospital. Yeah, you get lots of shaky cam, and it, it's a really nice st- stylistic touch. You get some fade outs going in where it's you know a close up on Lundgren's face, and then um you know fade now into the other end of the room. I mean um. But yeah, like, like you said, for something of this nature, for them to be putting that much style into something like that, I think is is pretty cool. Because if you really want to, we could <laughs> – Agent Red is coming up. I keep talking about it, but Agent Red, again, this is uh, yeah. done by the same company and everything. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I bet it probably had the same budget. But you want to see how money can be well spent? You know, Take a look at Stormcatcher. You want to see how the same money can be you know, tossed down the toilet? Take a look at Agent Red. So <laughs> – I assumed watching Agent Red that they didn't spend any money on it, but <laughs> it's possible that they. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be rewatching that again. But yeah, but um. So we'll see. When we haven't really talked about it, yeah. So the name of this terrorist group who who comes in and who is you know behind all of this, um, yeah. So it's an underground military organization, and they're waging war on the U.S. government. Uh, they're going by the name of Serpent Killers. And so we we know now basically who our uh, <laughs> who who our main bad guys are in this entire thing. Um, yeah, they're they're going by the name of Serpent Killers. And um, when the uh, when the general first reveals this, um, I guess we kind of have some hints that maybe he might be involved because um, he knows way too much about them. But they haven't revealed that quite yet. The the reveal of well, not even that, but the, the characterization of the general. I don't entirely understand i don't know what he's going for he just says that they're going to basically kill the the president um, by bombing the white house but i don't really understand his plan at all yeah they well and i guess i guess his motivation is the fact that his son died right because they they kind of touch upon that Mm -hmm. briefly a couple times but it's only it's only quick comments in passing of you know i served with your son and then he says, well, you served with my son so many years ago. But that's pretty much it. We don't, to my knowledge, I mean, do they pick up on how his son, um, how his son died or anything like that? Did, did we miss that? No, they just don't say. They, there's a point where he's in the church 
and he, they say something to me, oh, my son was in that unit. Um, but that's that's about it. And then when he says, oh, they 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 failed my son or something in some some fashion, right? And it, it does it's not really explained. Uh, I was actually kind of scratching my head at the end of it. I I didn't understand. Like um, for you know, compared to to Ed Harris and The Rock, who's probably got the best justification for the things he's doing of any villain I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, it's just it's handled by Michael Bay, so it doesn't really. It's it's not great. Mm-hmm. The movie's not. It could it could be better. Uh, if that was the focus, it, it could be a lot better. The instead that issue that he has is unresolved at the end of the film. Whereas this in this movie, I'm not really sure what his issue is. He just doesn't seem to like the the president or the government. Yeah, that that that's pretty much it. We're not given anything else, but. But yeah, Jessica Holloway, you know, Jack's wife, she does survive due to the fact, I guess, that the terrorist who stabbed her missed any vital areas. I don't know about you. I mean, I guess she was a combat version. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. I I did have to kind of scratch my head. I mean, I guess because, you know, they were throwing smoke bombs and all sorts of stuff into uh, the Holloway household that um, I guess it kind of makes sense. But I just kind of wondered, I was like, okay, these are trained military uh, uh, mercenaries here and she stabs her and she doesn't miss any. Like, I, I would just think a trained professional like this would be able to, okay, one stab, they're going to make it, uh, it, it, it it's going to count. But, uh, you know, fortunately, I guess she was, she missed vital any anything vital, I guess, and I guess I just chalked that up to the fact that the scene was just so frenetic, and there, like I said, there was smoke going, and maybe she couldn't see. But I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like th- these are trained professionals, and you know, luckily, plot convenience. Um, Holloway's uh, Holloway's wife um, survives this. I honestly think, actually, if they wanted to add some real dramatic heft to this, I actually think maybe they should have killed off Holloway's wife. And then he became maybe a single father or something like that at the end. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that would have been way too dark, but it's it's just a little too happy, you know, and cookie cutter in the fact that she survives such a horrific event. Well, that's one of the things that I thought when when I, I mentioned earlier that I thought the movie was uh, as charming in a way, because I think that this is sort of that pre 9-11 world where you're allowed to have. Uh, overly hopeful uh, endings where everything's back to normal. You know, somebody saved the day. Now somebody, they definitely would have killed her off. She would have died right there probably on the floor yeah. of her own living room. But they wouldn't have done that then. That was the 90s. They're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, and you can you can feel it. Gotta love 1999. You watch it, you're just like, yeah, she's... Whereas now, I mean, even re-watching the movie... Um, I had to go. No, this is the nineties. She's not gonna die. Yeah, <laughs> but I did. I did have that like moment of, oh man, I can't believe they're gonna. And I was like, I oh, don't know, they're not gonna do that. No, but it's weird um, when uh, the girl run or the woman runs up and stabs her. It's an eight inch knife, and she she twists the knife. Oh, she plunges it in. Yeah, yeah, it's all the way under the ribs, and she twists it and yanks it out. There's a bunch of gooey blood on her weird little nineties sweater. And yeah, it's it feels like it's going to be darker, but it's weird too that the woman stabbed her because she has a gun. Yeah, so it's just an odd choice to to stab her. And and speaking of odd choices, you kind of touched upon this earlier, but yeah, so we get such you know horrific scenes here, and then suddenly 
the film shifts these tones and I don't think the tones really work because as soon as we find out that, that she is okay, again, it, it's, it shifts into like these, uh, these kind of bizarre and weird comic moments. So yeah, quickly after Holloway is again, trying to steal a plane, which is, you know, we, we have some irony here. He is stealing a plane so that he can clear his name and find the rare, the whereabouts of another stolen plane. I thought that was kind of cute. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he is able to sweet talk the elderly mechanic um, by claiming that he is also from Brooklyn, which you know, it, like I said, I, I have no really problems with the scene, but it's just it's just kind of odd having, you know, these comic scenes come in at this moment after after what we just saw. And it's really kind of weird coming from coming from Lundgren's character. I mean, he just he just watched his wife almost die. OK, and his his daughter was, you know, panicked and screaming and everything. And he's just going to be joking with this uh, with this mechanic saying, hey, who went to school in Brooklyn? Uh, you know, I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird thing. It is a nice uh, Stallone reference in there. Oh, but, Lords of Flatbush. Yep. Because he. Yeah. But it is. It, it's uh, it's just the whole movie is full of these kind of weird moments that don't gel all the all the time. And it's another one that's it's shot like uh, like there's the light coming in. It's like this nostalgic kind of moment where you know, just the way it's shot it's very it's 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 totally wrong for what's going on but actually it feels like something out of a michael bay movie so maybe it would have worked here's one thing that that i noticed um especially on my most recent viewing in preparation for this is one thing that i find amazing is that for a film about the theft of a stealth bomber um it's clearly demonstrating its stealthiness because the stealth bomber is virtually never seen throughout the film did you did you notice that yeah. at all? I mean, here here is this film about this, you know, high tech, awesome, uh, you know, fighter jet that we never see. I mean, we saw it a little bit in stock footage and we're going to see it again later on a little more stock footage. But that's pretty much it. I mean, it's called the Stormcatcher. That's what the movie is called, for crying out loud. And we're, we're never really going to get to see this plane, are we? No, <laughs> the closest you get is when it's stolen. And I am. I am almost positive that that's not the the actual plane. Okay. Because I don't even think you see the whole thing in that scene. I can't remember. I remember there's a guy hanging out the bottom at one point, but I can't remember if you actually see the jet. I, I don't. I think you only see it in stock footage. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think you can either. I mean, I think they probably built a replica, of maybe the front end or something like that for that for that particular scene. But yeah, that's pretty much it. But yeah, I thought I just thought that was kind of interesting that uh, we never really get to see it. But again, it is a stealth bomber. It's supposed to fly under the radar, oddly enough, like yeah, oddly enough, like this film <laughs> did for so many years. So <laughs> you see more of the shark in Jaws than you see of the jet in this movie, <laughs> and that is saying something. So <laughs> yeah, you know, it's here where uh, where Captain Lucas, and, you know, he makes a reappearance in the film. And I thought this was interesting. Mm -hmm. We talked about it already, how his how his turn as the bad guy is telegraphed from the beginning. But I just thought it was it's it's really kind of odd how he's been absent for pretty much the entire film. And then when he reappears in the film, they're playing it like we're supposed to be surprised at his turn here. And which I mean, I, yeah. I was I was never surprised at this. I would have been more surprised if they'd. Oh, it turns out he was forced into doing this the whole time and he's among the captives now 
Wouldn't it have been interesting, though? I mean, that would have been more interesting. Well, and I, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking to myself, wouldn't a much more effective turn have been he was forced into this and it was Sparks who was leading the whole thing all along? I mean, that's something. We yeah, never would well, have that would have been well, that would have been shocking because he's the guy who said, yeah, go use my phone in the truck. Right. So, you know, they could have narratively worked that. Although, I again, I don't think the bad guy's plan is all that great. It would have been better for them to kill off both pilots, or at least Lundgren, and say, oh, we don't know where he is. He's just gone, and so is the plane, and they would have easily blamed it on him. Right. Right. Yeah, no, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But, I mean, we do get a, uh, we do get a really cool um, fight scene. Uh, so, yeah, Captain Lucas and Holloway, they duke it out with Holloway getting the upper hand. Of course, I mean he's a foot taller than Lucas. So, um, but yeah, he yeah. he hangs him, and um, yeah, it's it's. I mean, like I said, it's it's a pretty brutal, it's a pretty gnarly scene. But um, I'm curious because you've done the kill counts. How many how many people is it that uh, that Lundgren the <laughs> the Lundgren kills in this one? Uh, let me look. I actually did write that down. Oh, I let me check here. Because it can't be as many as sweepers. I don't think is it. Well, no, he kills a lot of people in sweepers. He kills like forty something okay, yeah, people that's... in sweepers. He only, yeah, so he gets like a dozen in this movie, twelve. Okay, yeah. Well, Lucas so... is of course one of them, but we see, you know what we see? Oh, and it's good though. I love that death. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean it's it's. I'm like I said, it's it's brutal. It's pretty uh, it's pretty nasty. But one um... thing they probably shouldn't have done was established that. Lucas is an out of shape dude. Yeah. <laughs> like they do that in the beginning of the movie. They're like, Oh, he's, he's out of shape. And he's like, Oh, cause I exercise. And it's like, maybe establish that he's some kind of threat before killing him, making it look this rough. They should have just um, been, maybe even get a different actor that's bigger. And, but I don't know, just something instead. It's, it's, it's a, it's not even a, a challenge. No, no. But, you know, we do see that, uh, that Lucas, apparently he was not the mastermind behind the entire operation. We already talked about it. The big reveal, yeah. uh, the man behind the theft of Stormcatcher. Apparently I'm guessing general William Jacobs. He's the, uh, he's head of serpent killers as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. They, they don't really say, but I assume. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he is our main bad guy. We already talked about how, um, this is pretty much he's playing Ed Harris from The Rock, even given some lines of dialogue that Ed Harris, uh, did. But what mm-hmm. I found really, really interesting is that, uh, a couple <clears throat> films prior to doing this one, um, Lundgren did the film The Peacekeeper. And it's really kind of wild yeah. how in The Peacekeeper, Dolph is battling this exact same villain. I will say that Robert Miano is much better um, in the role than uh, who's in the actor and peacekeeper who uh, played the, uh, the the guy. His name is now escaping me. But yeah, I think Robert Miano is, is much better. But it's just kind of wild how three years later, Dolph is pretty much this film and peacekeeper. It's kind of weird. This film and peacekeeper are very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, well. Yeah, I guess it, I guess they are. In fact, when I first uh when you when you brought this up, this this movie, the movie that flashed in my head was Peacekeeper. Okay. And then I went, "No, wait, now it's the other one." Okay. <laughs> it's the other one where he's an Air because... Force an Air Force uh military guy who has has a cocky swagger. The other one, yes. Well, the difference is the the car rooftop chase scene from Peacekeeper is pretty awesome and there's Really not anything quite like that in this. No. 
But yeah, Holloway. Uh, so yeah, he's strong armed into flying. This is where I honestly feel like the, the final act of this film, especially in these scenes, this is almost where it's very apparent that they were kind of darting to the finish line and wanted to get the film completed into the can because it's just, we don't have any of that, any of that stylish um, visual style that we got earlier in the film. I and mean, it's all just kind of rushing to the finish line, but Holloway, uh, he's strong armed into, I, I guess what he's, fl- they're making him fly the storm catcher because he's one of the few who knows how to fly it. Um, and they want him to bomb the white house. And so what they do is they take Holloway's daughter, Nicole, they take her hostage in order to get him to do so, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And Sparks. R- right, and, and Sparks as well, that's right. And so it's at this point in the film where I honestly feel like it's it's nothing but stock footage city. I mean, every every exterior shot of the stealth jet, that's <laughs> stock footage. All of those other fighter jets that are lifting off here, stock footage. Um, All we pretty much get, I'm convinced, all they really filmed for these scenes is pretty much Holloway sitting in the quote unquote cockpit, but it's really not wearing his stealth suit and, you know, pretending to fly the plane. But that that's pretty much it. I think this is where the uh, the editors um, were probably working hardest and splicing together various uh, stock footage scenes with with what they have filmed. It's also a weirdly edited scene because um, there's a part early on where Dolph's messing with the guy because they put a guy in the, in the cockpit with him, obviously, to, to make sure he does what they want. And the guy's got a gun on his head. And so he starts um, doing G-force turns and it's pulling the gun away from his head. And I honestly thought he was going to do it um, so so well that it was going to knock the other guy out. Right. Because that, that's what happens in intense G-force turns. People pass out. And I was really hoping that was going to be it. And they actually edited it in, in such a way that for a little bit, the guy's gun is gone. And you're like, what happened? And then when it cuts back to him, he's holding the gun in his other hand. So I thought, ah, oh, what a great opportunity they missed. Well, it's it's really kind of, you know, I, I will say, you know, regarding uh, Lundgren acting in these scenes, it, it's really kind of interesting how he's choosing to play these scenes. I mean, he's playing it with such this, you know, arrogant swagger here that it's it's really kind of, yeah. I almost kind of wished that they would have said, they would have given him a little more direction and said, hey, can you pretend that you're actually flying a plane? Because, I mean, he's flying a stealth jet and you'd think maybe he'd be, you know, jerking his shoulders and, you know, arching his back a little. I mean, but he's pretty much just sitting there throughout these in, entire scenes. And apparently, you know, the, we see the stealth jet just moving all around and, you know, making all these turns that um, apparently, you know, for, for, for the scenes where, where Dolph is filming, I, I don't think uh, that translated well to him when he was filming those particular scenes. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. There's, there's a, the realistically, you know, he's probably not going to be moving, but cinematically he should probably be throwing some effort in. Right. Yeah. But you know, he does eject the terrorist who has the gun pointed at him. Yeah. That was a pretty cool thing. Which, which is, you know, we all knew that was going to happen, right? but I was really hoping that he would just knock him out, you know, with the, cause he, he, he pulls, makes the guy pull the gun away with the turn and catches it. That's how he catches the guy's gun. Cause it goes back into his other hand. Cause it's like I said, it's a really weirdly edited scene. Well, you were- but yeah, it's cool. I love that the they they when he shoots out, he's still got his hand on him, and so when he when he when it cuts back, he's like holding on to the guy's gloves. 
Yeah. That's pretty funny to me. Well, I really like the, uh, <laughs> I, I really like your idea regarding the G force because yeah, like you said, the, and I, I'm not an expert when it comes to fighter jets, especially the stealth bomber, but yeah, how, how cool would have been if they were able to use some of those, uh, some of those factors that, that, you know, are, that can be attributed to fighter jets in this film. So yeah, have, have your main bad guy or even just one of the bad guys, um, killed with the, uh, with the pure, you know, with the sheer gravity of, um, of this particular impressive jet. I mean, I don't know. I, but I, I like that idea actually of him meeting his demise yeah. by, you know, just how fast the plane is going. I think that had been kind of cool. Yeah, I was hoping for something like that. They unfortunately don't do it. And then I was worried that they weren't going to use the jet at all. And then they finally do. When coming up, he they basically have the kids play, or the Sparks and his daughter, they do a little reference to their football game <laughs> earlier in the movie. And I'm, not, I'm still not sure exactly how that works, because there's literally a counter in front of them. The bad guy can see it, too, and he's aware of it. They're counting down, and then they say go, and then they they attack him, which I was like, you think they would just have their guns on him, like, waiting for this? But then he blasts them with his, with the the smart bomb or smart missile or something it says. I, I don't remember exactly what it's put. Yeah, I... how it's put, but it's pretty that funny. That took me by surprise. Um, I honestly do not remember... Uh, that, that scene, my first time seeing it, but yeah, they are able to, Holloway is able to thwart, um, the, the evil general and everybody who is holding, uh, let's see. So the general and the terrorist who's holding, um, his friend Sparks and his daughter hostage, the three of them are able to work together by calling a football play that apparently only the three of them are in on. Uh, it, it, it's a little silly, but, um, I guess, I guess, it, I guess it is a, a nice touch considering that the film opened up with him coaching this, uh, this this flag football team for it to yeah. in, in a weird kind of sense the film kind of comes full circle in a really odd kind of way at this point but like you said I guess that adds to part of the film's charm right yeah the the only uh, other than not understanding the villain and not uh, whether well, there are a few I guess quibbles but the other the main issue I have it when once the film's over is I go like half the bad guys are still out there. They're still running around doing whatever they're doing. Like with a U-Haul, when it leaves, there's a shot of the the little base where they're hanging out. Right. And then and it's packed. It's packed with guys. And so it's like, what happened to them? One guy before the the U-Haul blows up, the guy that's driving it runs off into the desert. So you don't even know what happens to him. You know, what's weird is, yeah, you don't know what happens to him. And I thought this was interesting as well. You know, when Holloway ejects himself from the storm catcher, um, he, it's really kind of weird. He just says, all right, well, I blew up the general because, yeah, he's able to lock in on the general and blow up the van escort that the general was using to, to hold them uh, hostage. And, but he, he ejects himself from the storm catcher. And it literally, it goes right to the next scene of him again, walking alone through that same desolate California terrain that we saw him wandering through earlier. And in my mind, I was thinking to myself, well, we saw him eject himself from the, uh, from, from the stealth jet. It would have really been nice to see him land the stealth jet, be cleared of those charges and everything. But then I realized, wait a minute. I doubt they had stock footage to accommodate that. So how could they? <laughs> they already used to or a landing scene. They can't use it again. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I kind of forgave that. It's like reverse angle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it was interesting. I was thinking, okay, well, if I was the filmmaker, I would have loved to see him, you know, land the plane and get out and, you know, um, be greeted by, you know, um, some of the other military superiors and, you know, his, his name is cleared, but, um, but yeah, no, apparently, like I said, they didn't, they didn't have the stock footage for that particular scene. I, I don't know what happened there. Um, I highly doubt they cut anything. So, <laughs> yeah, well, this is, this is a, you know, I didn't, I didn't mention it earlier, but this is clearly a padded film. There is a lot of that kind of stuff in the movie where you're like, okay, that doesn't need to be that long. Or just think of the opening credits or it's the most padding I've seen since maybe Friday the 13th where they would just pad those, that, that number, try and get to that 90 minutes. Uh huh. By just having the world's longest opening credits. Well, even the closing there's nothing. credits. nothing. There's no footage. Yeah, even the oh, even yeah. the closing credits. They they do something that um I really only saw. I feel like I saw movies do in the '80s where um they're gonna do a quick recap of all the actors who you saw, where they're gonna you know re- remind you, okay, you know, Dolph Lundgren played Major Jack Holloway and everything. I mean, it, it's really kind of odd to see that particular scene come in at the end. For these final credits but like you said i think honestly they were trying to pad this so that it could hit that that 90 minute running time yeah and i'm not sure that if you took that stuff out it's probably on the verge it's probably like 80 some minutes which is like come on you know showdown little tokyo was a 70 minute movie it's fine yeah yeah well you know i don't i got things to do with my day i don't care if it's short <laughs> Especially for something like this, but but going along with the whole yeah. idea of this being charming, I mean, this ends. This could probably probably be. I mean, I'm trying to think. Bridge of Dragons ended on a somewhat happy note, but that was also kind of a more more of a. I don't know. I guess I want to see a hopeful ending. This could possibly be probably the most saccharine sweet ending I've seen in. Uh, in one of Dolph's films. So uh, the, the film ends back at another flag football game with Holloway's daughter. Um, Holloway, his wife and his wife again is doing just fine. And Sparks. And Sparks is getting really close to his wife. Yeah, but I know it's, it's kind of, kind of eerie, but maybe that's why he was camping. He was hoping. And, yeah. and there you go. Wouldn't that have been yeah. interesting? Maybe that's why he was, uh, if we, if we wanted to make uh, Sparks, the, uh, the main mastermind, he wanted, he wanted uh, Holloway's wife in the end, so he set them all up for it. Yeah. There you go. But yeah, they're so he's just got his arm around her and and stuff. It's pretty funny. Yeah, and, and they're all cheering on the. Yeah, I like. Uh, yeah, they are. But I like, I like how it ends with Dolph turning and looking at the camera and winking. I know. I, know. And then, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and what is this closing it's line? So weird. What is it he says? Because yeah, he looks at the camera. He winks because they they ask him how you learned about that play and doesn't he just say, what is it, fifty two snap or something like that? Something like I, I snap and oh, roll. Snap and roll. There snap you go. And roll, snap and roll. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> it's like I said, it's it's the ultimate happy ending, which again is odd considering we saw such um, such violent scenes earlier in the film. But but you know you you, you can't uh, you can't blame it too much. Like you said, it was nineteen ninety nine. And this is what we got around that time. And, you know, it, it, it could be much worse. We should probably mention, uh, we already talked about this earlier, but look, no discussion of Stormcatcher is complete without mentioning Agent Red. So um, Agent Red yeah. is the film. This uh, Agent Red came out actually about a year later 
after Stormcatcher, and it's notable for a couple reasons. Number one, obviously, it, it again stars Dolph Lundgren. Uh, number two, it was uh, Phoenician Entertainment also had their hand in that one as well. Um, but probably the most interesting thing about Agent Red is that it lifts literally entire scenes from Stormcatcher, mainly the action scene at the beginning where uh, Captain Lucas is stealing the plane, um, but it lifts that entire scene and places it into Agent Red, and we are to believe that um, that it, it's going along narratively with uh, with the events of Agent Red. It is it is pretty bizarre and definitely the first time I've seen something like this. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I like I said when I first saw that, I thought I was losing my mind. Yeah. I just never had had that had that kind of thing happen to me before. Where I, I thought this. Have I not? Have I seen this before? What is going on? Like it even says, like they're not even hiding it on the guy's shoulder. You know, you can see clearly says says Holloway, and but it's it's a, uh, I think it's one of those scenes where it's like awkwardly brutal now. Yeah, you know, it was brutal to begin with, but then you watch this and you're like, in context of that movie, it's it's awkwardly brutal. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, they don't even change out where he's killing the mechanics, and you go, that's not right, and he's throwing a knife into the guy. Yeah, that's what I, <laughs> that's going, exactly what? what I was going to say, because in the context of Stormcatcher, it works because he is, you know, the, the quote unquote Holloway. So Captain Lucas, who's disguised as Holloway, he, he is the villain. So, of course, he in order mm -hmm. to steal this plane, he is going to be so ruthless and, and villainous in these scenes. So in the context of Stormcatcher, it works completely. But in Agent Red, we're to believe that that is Lundgren's character and he is stealing this jet for reasons that don't make entirely a lot of sense and we see him being so ruthless again and like you said it, it doesn't make sense agent red is is a mess and i gotta be honest it's one of those films when i started this project and started to show up i knew that it was coming there are the good there are the bad there are the ugly agent red happens to be one of the ugly and so get, get, getting to that one yeah. is um is going to be interesting i'm looking forward to it as i haven't seen it in years but um i feel like Watching Agent Red is one of those films that you need to watch in tandem with Stormcatcher, just so you can see how much was lifted and how similar the the two are. I'd be curious to find how much of that movie is uh, is from other movies, because my recollection is that very little matched up. But I just remember that scene when Lundgren walked went into the hangar in that movie. I remember it's just. Going, what in the world? I think it's right in the beginning, too. But it was just so weird because I was counting kills and then suddenly I was like, I thought I already counted these. This isn't yeah. right. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, my experience yeah, my so... experience with Agent Red was actually quite similar because I had seen Stormcatcher already. And then a year later, Agent Red came out. And actually, when we get to when we get to Agent Red in the series, I'll, I'll tell you about my whole experience with it. But I do I do okay. remember I was I was watching it and I actually I I actually fell asleep while watching it. That, that, that shows you how um, how electric and entertaining it was. But I remember falling asleep <laughs> oh, and no. then I remember waking up. So I was like, I was about 18 years old when when it came out. But I remember waking up and I was like, wait. Why did I put Stormcatcher in my VCR? I thought I, I thought I was watching Agent Red. What is going on here? And so, and then I literally, I literally had to walk up to my VCR, eject the tape, and realize, no, this is Agent Red. What the hell is this? And so, literally for that entire day, I spent that afternoon popping in Stormcatcher, popping in Agent Red, and just watching the two, the two scenes and how they play them out. And it's, 
It's really eerie. And um, I, I guess I guess the story goes with Agent Red is that they really didn't even have a complete movie. None of it made sense, anything like that. And they had to cobble together just stock footage from tons of different movies. If you look at uh, Agent Red, there's stock footage from Blown Away. I think from the, um, I don't know if The Rock, I think it might have a little bit of The Rock in there. It has one with uh, Mario Van Peebles called Solo obviously Stormcatcher, and they just put all this stuff in there to try and make the film coherent. And I guess at the end of the day, it does, it does make sense, but that doesn't make it a very good film. So yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Brenton, as we, uh, as we wrap this up, you know, you know, I like to do two recommendations, but uh, looking at Stormcatcher, does it get a recommend from you? Um, not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a film in general. You know, I hate to say no, um, but I'm probably going to because I don't think the average person is going to find much they haven't seen before. Uh, assuming that they're watching this uh, to watch an action movie, they're probably they've probably seen Face Off and Broken Arrow and The Rock, and they're they're going to register it on some level that this is old hat. So probably not. Uh, as as a Lundgren film, I do think it, it is charming in its own way. Like I said, so I, I actually recommend Completionist. Check it out for sure. Yeah, you know, with, with regard to my recommend, um, I, I do have to say, while this film is not exactly brimming with originality, I honestly think we have Anthony Hickox to thank for making it at least watchable. Dolph is a like. Oh, it yeah. is. Uh, D Dolph, you know, here he he's a likable presence in this one, like he always is. But I honestly think it's the visual flourishes that are put in by Hickox that really make the film hold up even to this day. I mean, in, like, going back to Agent Red, if you compare this with Agent Red that came out just a year later, Stormcatcher exceeds it exponentially, and, and I think that's due to the directing style of uh, Anthony Hickox. Here, I mean, he's gone on the record for saying this as well, but with films like Stormcatcher. He was saddled with a low budget, a limited shooting schedule, and from what I read, pretty much orders from the from the producers and everybody who had money in this, orders to finish it and deliver it as quickly as possible. So working under those constraints, I think the film looks so much better than it has any right to be whatsoever. Is it one that you absolutely need to see? You already pretty much answered this. Not really. You're not going to be you're not going to be missing out by not seeing it. But I think if you compare it with all the other films that were put out under the banner of Phoenician Entertainment and Jim Wynorski and Andrew Stevens, this is better than all of those other titles. As a Dolph Lundgren film, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. As a Dolph Lundgren film, I think um, you know, it's a tough one to recommend. I would say, like you said, for completion, is sure. Yeah, but I think it should be noted, you know, this came during a pretty rough period for uh, for our man of the hour. Um, the early 2000s were not the best period for Dolph. And while the projects, I think, may have sounded good on paper, the end results always left wanting a little more. But in the end, at the end of the day with the film, we're able to see him firing a machine gun multiple times. He gets into at least one fist fight. So on the Dolph action front, I think it certainly delivers. It's also, I, I'll, I'll throw this out there as well. I also think it's the best of the quote unquote Dolph in the military triumvirate of films um, around the uh, late 90s. You know, like we said earlier, he did The Peacekeeper, he did Stormcatcher, and he did Agent Red. And all three of these films are eerily similar in a lot of ways. But I would honestly say that Stormcatcher is the best. 
not one of Dolph's best, but it's certainly not his worst either. But in the end, it's ultimately forgettable. Yeah, I think, you know, and I agree with much of what you say there. It's because he does have two pretty good action scenes. You know, I that John Woo uh, light scene in, in the house is pretty good. And he does fight a guy that's holding a knife with a futon. Right. And that's pretty awesome on its own. So, you know, they, when you get stuff like that and and plus Dolph, I love that that when he comes out of the shadows when he, before he fights that guy and he's got the he's got the MP5 and he's got the Air Force shirt on, I think he looks awesome. Yeah. So, got that stuff. And and there's some curious things in the movie that are almost worth checking out. I'm pretty sure that half the score is the music from Legends of the Fall. I'm not sure. And so it does have some curious things. And Tony Hickox, uh, yeah, he brings a lot of flourish to this. Uh, my memories of uh, Jill the Ripper are, are maybe better. So I'm guessing I like that a little bit more when I rewatch that. Um, he He's probably more suited to her than action. Yeah. And I think I so think that, even he that would probably admit, looks better. Yeah, and I think he would even admit that as well. I mean, he's gone on the record as saying, "Look, this mm-hmm. he, he he did the action thing for uh, for a quick and easy paycheck, and he's kind of regretted it ever since." But um, I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, Jill the Ripper. If it's okay with you, um, because again, that Jill the Ripper is another one of those films that is. Uh, um, not many have really seen and not many really even talk about, but, um, it's actually kind of hard to come by. And I do know that that is one film that you actually own. So I was, uh, I was hoping mm-hmm. if you'd be willing to, uh, to come back on to discuss the films of, uh, Dolph and Phoenician entertainment. Um, we did storm capture already. Totally. Um, but would you be willing to come back for Jill the Ripper? A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. The only caveat, yeah, the only me. catch to that, the only caveat is you have to agree to come back for agent red. So, oh, okay. Well, I, I it should be interesting. So yes, cool. I think you can watch Agent Red for free on Amazon if you've got Prime. I know. I, I wish that Jill the Ripper was available instead of Agent Red, actually. But um, yeah, yeah it's all right. I've I've got Jill the Ripper. I've got a pretty good version. Yeah, so. yeah. And actually, I think a widescreen. I think the version you have is the same version I have of Jill the Ripper because uh, it actually has a commentary track by Anthony Hickox, which I guess. Really? Yeah, he also did a commentary track for Stormcatcher um, on its initial DVD release, but unfortunately, my copy um, was the re-release that was put out by a cheap uh, by a cheap DVD company known as Key DVD, and the the uh, commentary on Stormcatcher is not available. But if you can get your hands on the uh, the the copy of Jill the Ripper that was put out by Sony, yeah, there is a commentary track by Anthony Hickox that is quite good. Yeah, I'm pulling mine off the shelf looking at it right now. Yeah, it's got commentary. So, um, anyway. Too bad about my Stormcatcher. I would have been interested. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, we talked briefly um, when we did Sweepers. But yeah, uh, the website All Out of Bubblegum. I love this website. You have been doing um, an amazing job with it. Your video essays are, are amazing. I love those. And um, you're still rocking the kill counts. I think last time I checked out your website, you did a kill count for the Jean-Claude Van Damme classic uh, knockoff. Is that right? Yeah, that one's up there right now. Um, it'll probably be something else by the time this video comes up. But we'll have uh, – I, I think I'm, I'm working on a couple videos right now, so we'll probably have some other things that I put up. I got a couple essays in the that I'm working on right now. 
Yeah. Well, as always, I, I appreciate you coming on and uh, talking about this. And oddly enough, our conversation is just about a minute and a half longer than the uh, film itself. So I think that says something. So. Oh, all right. <laughs> that's, prob- that's probably perfect then. Very cool. Well, we'll definitely um, have you back on for uh, for Jill the Ripper. That'll be here in the uh, next couple months. And I know I've I had a couple people contact me um with regard to the minion, um, I did not uh, skip over the minion. I, I am fully aware of the minion. I know that that um, actually Lundgren did that film around the time he did Blackjack. But um, my guest lined up for the minion is uh, uh, our, our schedules have not have not aligned um, like I'd like them to. So we are planning on doing that one next month. But in the meantime, I've been moving forward in the filmography of Dolph and also. 2018 was such a momentous year for the guy. I had to do an episode on Creed 2 and then one on Aquaman. But we are back in the direct-to-video realm, and uh, next month we will be uh, hitting up the Minion. Are you familiar with the Minion as well? I am. I am. I, it's you know, it's one of those ones like uh, Chuck Norris did a similar movie. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those. But it, it's it's not. It's I, I don't know. I I don't mind the Minion. I I, I find it charming now too. Just from a lot of these movies that are a little different, I, I tend to like now. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm actually really looking forward to The Minion, actually. I haven't seen it in years, but I'm looking forward to revisiting it because a Blu-ray is going to be coming out next month, actually, with a commentary track by the director of that one. Oh, yeah, really? So um, that one's going to be put out by a... That's good. Kino, Kino Lorber is the uh, company putting that one out. So, um, so I'm looking forward to that oh, one. Oh, fancy. Yeah. yeah. So anyway... I have a ton of theirs. They did. Uh, they did the Long Goodbye recently, or not recently, but they did. They put out a Long Goodbye. That's really. That's a good Blu-ray to get. Oh, I need to check that one out. That's so, I like Kino Lorber. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so Elliot Gould playing Philip Marlowe. It's pretty yeah, good. it's it's good to see. You know, I've talked about this with a with a buddy as well. It's good to see those little boutique companies who are still putting stuff out for collectors and fans of physical media. Because uh, you know, you and I have talked about this, but I refuse to get a hundred percent on with the digital movement. So, yeah, it's, it's rough. Uh, it's getting harder now too, but I like that there are these places. You got your screen factories, Severin and, and Kino Lorber is a good one. Uh, Criterion, if you can afford it. Yeah. But <laughs> it's just like, there's a bunch of these. They're really good. I'm pretty happy with all that, with, with what I've been doing. Uh, I recommend highly, uh, arrow, um, they're not always compatible. They're not always region A uh, for you fellow North Americaners, but they're they're excellent. They're probably the best out there is Arrow. Oh, okay, cool. I don't have anything by Arrow, but I, I keep seeing them pop up. So I'm going to check them out now. So thank you very much. Yeah. Cool. Um, Eureka is good in England. Uh, if you're they're, they're putting out a lot of Hong Kong films at the moment, and I really like them, but they're – you know, again, you probably need a region for a Blu-ray player. Well, cool. Well, cool. Well, hey, again, Brenton, I do appreciate this. Thank you so much. Um, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast. <laughs>